You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principle, challenges indeed in Jewish education. And I turn to my good friend, uh, Rabbi Arya Clapper, who has, I think, faced an intense challenge over the last couple of weeks as the uh, Gaza war began, continued, and the public nature of every aspect of the war, especially the highlighting of civilian casualties. This was something that uh, I saw Rabbi Clapper had addressed in a number of forms, not only in in writing in his weekly uh, emails, which is a wonderful thing, which I I really recommend uh, all our listeners subscribe to. You'll, you'll, You'll get ma'at, uh, hakamus, but harbe uh, echus in in everyone. But also, uh, I understand when I spoke with you, Rivarie, that you actually engaged in a number of speaking engagements in a number of different forums and dealing with this this very very difficult subject, especially for for young people to understand the images of the suffering of the Palestinian people in light of what Israel firmly believes they need to accomplish. And uh, putting it in a halachic perspective, I think, you know, is important any way you slice it. I have, in addition, as you mentioned, to writing weekly emails, I have you know, ongoing correspondence with uh, many of my Talmudim who are, you know, who play important roles in the Jewish position in the Jewish community now. And often the weekly essay is a response to some of those emails and then makes it into drushas, which is uh, just very nice. <laughs> Gives me a lot of sifika nefesh. I don't always find out, but sometimes I look at someone's drusha, they post it somewhere, and I say, oh, look, I got quitted. I also gave Shurim on this at Princeton, Yale, and Rutgers. Did an online share for people in the U.S. and Israel. That was a very impressive people showing up for two hour and 15 minute share. <laughs> Warned in advance, it was two hours and 15 minutes. And had published a, a couple of articles that are Barry Kornblow in the New Jersey Jewish Link. But I don't want to, you know, to create the impression that this is an issue that I only got into because of the Gaza war. I have uh, put together now, which uh, subscribers to my list will hopefully receive this in, in a few weeks, a whole package of 20, right now 23 articles, I think it is, on these issues, which go back to the 1990s. So this is something that I was prepared for. It comes up. Uh, it comes up every time. It came up uh, when I was director of the Israel Project at Harvard Hill, right during the Second Intifada. Right. These these are issues that go back a long way, and I think that for me, the happy thing, I guess, is that I want my Talmudim to care. I want them to want to be sure that what they're supporting is right. And not just we automatically you know, think whatever our side is doing is right. I want them to want to root that in halacha and hashkafa. And what I'm you know, very cheered is that uh, you know my audience to some extent is self-selecting. That's not the case in the New Jersey Jewish Link where we were writing responses to somebody else. But on the whole, that's you know the positive feedback I get, and it's been almost entirely positive. Is Talmudim saying, "Wow, we really needed this." Because if people just tell us, just go along and, you know, or worse, you know, say that, you know, in a war, there's no, there, there's nothing Judaism has to say about war other than win. They find that extraordinarily difficult to support and it undermines their sense, you know, the, their sense of what their neshamas should be. When I wrote this past week, 
uh, was talking about the uh, the Rashi on, uh, and I said it in Shul also, right? Rashi says, Yaakov right? And so I wrote this um, this week is that when we struggle and you know and debate these issues, we're just following the footsteps of Yaakov. And I liked the the version of this given by uh, Dr. Viva Gottlieb Zornberg and following in the trail of the, of the Kumbalibuis. You could probably put male names to some of those ideas also, but that happens to be where I got them from. So Nechamalibuis taught that Yaakov's wrestling with the Malach was internal. Right, that it's not right. If you have Yaakov Vadov, you have Yaakov's alone, and yet he's wrestling. So obviously, the wrestling has to happen internally. And then you combine that with Rashi, Pasha, that what he's internal, what he's wrestling with is the ace of inside himself. And Dr. Zornberg's uh, real, yeah, I think, beautiful hara is that Yaakov has been wrestling with the ace of inside himself since the uh, the episode with the with the Bachor and the Brachos with Yitzchak. He put on a mask, and maybe the mask fits. Sure. Yes, and so what I, right, so I argued is that that Yaakov uh, is wrestling with this the night before because he still hasn't found a way to integrate, right? To you know, to find a way which he can say that I'm both you know I, I have both the coal and the yod and all those sorts of things, and the the wrestling with the malach is a way in which he has the experience of fighting in a way that, that enables him to be true to himself, and that's what we're all going for. Right? We're going for a way in which we can fight the battles we have to fight but without uh, turning a day so. As you say, Ravaria, that first, you know, there has to be the internal uh, before there can be the external. Let me ask you uh, about yourself, and I don't say this flippantly, you've been dealing with the subject for close to a quarter century or maybe more. Has your thinking about this evolved? I know that you are a dogged researcher and a, a thinker of how to apply your ideas and your morals to what the material is suggesting. In light of the intensity of the issue in the last couple of weeks, has there been a, a change in uh, your stance and in terms of uh, how you want to present these these ideas? It's a fair question, and I'm actually going to send out the pamphlet in chronological. My plan is in chronological order, so that people can evaluate whether that you know whether I've shifted with the political winds or not. My take is really not at all in the theoretical framework. Uh, the theoretical framework, I think, is the same. You know, it might be that my politics move one way. Or one way or another as to how I think they should be implemented in policy, my sense is that it's largely held up. And I think, you know, one of the one of the generally important experiences in my life, I was you know, somebody who had lots of questions and lots of moral questions about halacha and Judaism, and I made a decision, you know, that this is going to be my life anyway, even though I had questions. And one of the joys of my life was discovering that often, you know, the tradition lives up to my faith in it. And the more I learn, the more it turns out that the moral positions that I saw, but I thought you know were maybe minority positions or things like that bothered me, really stand up, and that has been the case here as well. Uh, I'll tell you, you know very specifically, a while back, uh, maybe even 10, 15 years ago, a friend sent me an article on civilian casualties, and it included um, a morale that seemed to me uh, just over the top. Right. It sounded like the morale thought that all there was, we like when you have a war, you have two groups fighting with each other, and all that matters is the the abstraction, the totality of the am, and all individuals don't matter at all. So once you're going to a war, right, you don't have to take into consideration. You know, of course, any this morale kind of, is uh, something that uh, you know was brought to my attention by one of your articles, but of course, it was the morale just coincidentally from last week's parsha. So, yeah. so it was. Not it, good, right? It, right. Yeah, it's right, right on target. 
And when I first saw it, it you know, it just really, um, it upset me, you know, like, you know, the whole notion that, you know, that we can make individuals disappear into abstractions. And you know, it'd be interesting to look for uh, one of my Talmudian sent me. I haven't had enough chance to read it really well, how Rav Amiel, Rav Moshe Vigar Amiel has, right, has an essay which seems directly opposed to this and very starkly, but you can never lose track of the individual uh, under any circumstances at all. But what was great was, as I started reading, the, you know, I, I reread, so I, I was very unhappy when people started quoting that morale beginning of this war, and because I thought they were quoting it that way. And then Rabbi Alex Ozer, who's the JLIC at Yale and wonderful, told me, you know, pointed out to me that I was you know, not noticing how every time somebody quoted it, they always put in a qualifier that said, of course, you can only do those things which are absolutely necessary for the war, putting in standards. You know, and only things which are absolutely necessary for victory in the war. Let's just, uh, you know, elucidate for our listeners that the morale, when he talks about the killing basically out of uh, the the city of Shechem by Shimon Levi, which, of course, had already been uh, you know, argued about by the Rambam and the Ramban, the morale steps into the breach and explains things based on uh, the principles of war which he says that when you do have an attack from one country or one, again, he, he goes into realizing what is considered a, a nation and what is considered a, a, a combatant. But once you, it's clear that you do have these combatants fighting each other, the morale uh, implies that war is taken full throttle and it means that you have the right to attack that nation and as you say, the, the words of the morale don't have those qualifiers uh, clearly, but um, it would seem, if okay, you take the words of the morale the way they're written, that this nation is, you have been, war has been declared, then you are, the civilians are part of that war and can be attacked based on the rules of that, based on the rules of war. That's the morale. So Rav Arya, I, I know that the, those qualifiers indicated, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, from you know, Rav Herschel Schechter, when he quoted this morale, also, as, as you pointed out to me in an email, says that based on the military stratagem. But let's bring it down here. You know, if that that military stratagem is something that we're not really privy to, right? It's the generals deciding how the process needs to be carried out in terms of whatever term you want to use: eliminating, destroying, uprooting Hamas. Where do we have this? You know halachic voice being able to assert itself so i think this is the you know there are um i think you know people i, I don't have any i don't have any to many who ask me shallows from the battlefield as opposed to you know from other i do have we have asked from other positions in the army but not for the battlefield Baruch Hashem, there, are many there are others who have i listened to a shira by Rav Yisrael Shelat of in which he addressed these same issues but I think we have the responsibility of citizens in any democratic society, the role to the extent to which Americans have that role with regard to the Israeli army is a fraught issue. But I think that as, you know, that as Jews participating as a Jewish community, we have the right to offer our insights to the democratic society of, of, of right of Jews in Israel, of the community in Israel. We're in war. There are always going to be secrets. Nothing is ever going to be positive. And yet the, the population has an obligation to ensure that the war is just and the war is conducted justly. Uh, there's certainly no belief that a democracy automatically does the right thing. But, you know, when this came up with the U.S. many years ago, I pointed out right that the Athenians massacred the island of Melos for you know for no reason at all. Right, so original democracies can you know can lead to, to massive massacres. So I think that 
we have the obligation as any other any society which appoints a government has an obligation of oversight. And to some extent, there's an issue. You know, you're going to have to take some things on trust. And to some extent, but you'll be also demand all the information you can. You evaluate all the information you can receive, and you want to make sure that the people representing you are representing you properly and, and behaving properly. You know, and that the ones who care about halacha have halacha guidelines that they can look at so that their own actions are, are right, are governed, are governed that way. When people say things that are clearly wrong, right, we need to oppose them specifically and say, right, no, that would not be right. Right. So if somebody gets up and says, actually, we, you know, we don't care at all about civilian casualties. So, so it's important to point out and say, no, that's not true. Right. Actually, we have a standard which is very similar um, to international law. Maybe international law is binding per se. Uh, right? Famous sheet of uh, Rosh Israeli, among others, that certain forms of international law are specifically binding on us and maybe a higher standard in some areas. But I don't, you know, I don't, I don't understand any more than you would think of it in the United States that nobody's allowed to question whether and how the Vietnam War is being conducted properly or whether and how the Afghanistan War is being conducted properly or the Iraq or whatever war you want. Uh, why should that be different in Israel? Right, you're the population. There's a government. The government is acting as your shluchim, and you have a responsibility to make sure that your shluchim are shluchim lidvar mitzvah, not shluchim lidvar avera. Right, but but it's really unprecedented. I think the amount of reportage, not about it, but actually the the IDF spokesmen have been very very clear. I can't say that they've been 100 percent transparent because there's certain things that information that could affect security. But it seems like they have been very straightforward in terms of discussing what they've done. They've talked about the precautions that they've been taking, really in a way that I don't think any other modern war uh, has ever demanded. There has been uh, not just, you know, as you say, the halachic voices or the ethical voices from within the country, but because of external pressures, you know, it, it seems like they are engaging in a war. And again, just compare it to what's happened in Russia and Ukraine in ways that they have been extremely open about what they have done, the leaflets they've sent, the maps that have been circulated, and why they are after certain places. Would you say that you are frustrated with, with the way the war has been conducted? Are you suggesting that they have gone over the line, that there needs to be protests, that, as you say, they, there needs to be voices raised saying that, no, the, this doesn't represent us? So I want to be clear. Like my political position uh, has been, both publicly and privately, in full support of Israeli actions. I, I have an article, and I spend lots of time explaining what the word doctrine of proportionality, which I think Halakha largely adopts, uh, requires and doesn't require. And, you know, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not a measurement of casualties. It's a measurement of relationship between casualties and military goals. You have to define the military goals very precisely. You know, I pointed out earlier in the war when people were saying that well, you can't have a siege, right? Because there's a position that says that you have to leave the fourth side open. But right? Obviously, you only leave the fourth side open if your goal is to conquer the territory and you want the army to retreat. But if your goal is to kill the people, right? You don't have a fourth side, right? That would be that would be that, right? that would be ridiculous, right? And, you know that that it's so all sorts of common sense notions like that. My own personal opinion has been: I accept the claim that Hamas needs to. Uh, be removed politically from Gaza, and that means removing it you know, pretty much absolutely. And I'm not aware of anybody who has proposed a strategy for doing so uh, that doesn't involve an enormous amount of destruction. Uh, I was very happy early in the war when Brett Stevens interviewed uh, Naftali Bennett, 
And uh, Nathalie Bennett said his strategy would be, right, not as opposed to launching urban warfare, but to uh, surround sur- surround and besiege and wait till the soldiers have the Hamas soldiers have to come out of their tunnels. Terrorists have to come out of their tunnels. And I think that you know, my take is that the strategy that Israel has pursued so far has actually been you know, fa- been fairly limited in terms of the death it's called, not cause, not the destruction. But I care much more about life, and I hope that that will be able to continue. I hope that it's been successful enough that it's actually uh, that actually there's, not, there's still a chance to really eradicate Hamas. Yeah, I think that it's important to state over and over again that I support it because I believe these things about it. And right, and that I would not, you know, that would not support it if somebody said we're just taking, you know, taking revenge, and therefore to call out the, uh, you know, the moments when people, unfortunately, often dafka from the uh, religious community, use language otherwise, say no, like we support this because, and not because we don't care. I think that's really important. I think what uh, will become important probably, and I, I think I guess I should say also, like, you know, I think that we have to be clear that we support the war. Because it has a valid, vital goal, which is to enable the Israeli people to live in peace and security in their land. If it became clear that the pursuit of the war no longer had a realistic chance of accomplishing that, then we have an obligation to say, like, like this isn't pointful anymore. But um, God willing, we're not going to get to that point. God willing, you know, that there's a, a strategy which is effective at accomplishing the valid military goals. Of uh, removing Hamas, that's my take. That's what I think. Ravari, when you when you live in a, and I'm not saying you do, but when you live in a, a restricted a bubble of of a world where you know the it's it's the Makairis, it's what you hearing from perhaps uh, the Israeli government, Makairis meeting from from halachic and Talmudic and uh, responsive sources. There's one way, but when you are speaking, and this is, you know, why I wanted to talk with you, when you have to present, especially, you know, to students in colleges, they, of course, are hearing things not only from protests from that, that are happening at, at universities throughout everywhere, but also consistently from the normal news outlets that most people refer to, whether it's New York Times or it's Haaretz or, 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 or Washington Post or The New Yorker or any magazine or Wall Street Journal. And what they are seeing there is consistently saying, well, there were, you know, almost every article says, yes, on October 7th, there were 1,200 or so uh, Israelis that were killed and butchered. Well, they don't use those words of killed. Uh, And then, of course, and there have been, and again, the number keeps on climbing, 16,000 Palestinians that have died. And again, usually in almost every single outlet, mostly women and children. Uh, I saw this morning uh, in the Wall Street Journal that they said that the Israelis have not necessarily disagreed with that number. They just say that that, that number doesn't necessarily uh, indicate how many of those 16,000 were actually Hamas terrorists or terrorists in training. So the students that you are speaking to, the adults, everyone, we are under assault. And the assault is the the world clamoring and screaming and saying, Whatever happened to you, don't you realize that your agents, as you mentioned before, uh, the army, the shluchim, there are 16,000 people dead and it's climbing and climbing and growing. Did that rear its head in any of your public discussions? Was there, was, was there people who were anguished and spoke out and said, uh, you know, whatever a halachic framework you're going to say, uh, how can it be that our agents 
country that we love or we want to support is responsible for the death of 16,000 people? So I think it comes up a lot privately, I would say, more than publicly, because publicly I, you know, I really talk about Torah and I don't, I don't usually engage in public uh, disputations in my room about this. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a series of things we need to do. Uh, one is we need to show that when somebody who we care about sends us, a, you know, a factual claim that bothers us, we need to show that we investigate and don't dismiss it out of hand because we, I, I don't think there's any argument in halakha that there is a khiv to believe the Israeli government. That doesn't make any sense. So we have to read you those. Know, so let's say, you know, somebody sent me an article from a regular site very recently talking about what Israel, you know, claiming that, you know, that Israel had said that a number a high number of its targets uh, were intended as psychological warfare without any direct military goal. That was a particular claim that would violate international law, whatever you think the moral issues independent of international law are. And so I researched it and I discovered that this article, I believe, you know, again, I can't say that, but back to, you know, I think one place I was pretty harsh, a lurid distortion of reporting by the Jerusalem Post. So the first thing is you have to show that you do your own research. Uh, the second thing is you have to show that you share the moral principles or else you have to explain why you don't. Um, right? So it's very important, you know, Rabbi Shlomo Brody, who happens to be long on my program, has an article on the uh, tablet now talking about different definitions of proportionality in international law. I have articles about this, it's been done almost ad nauseum. You know, people still in their heads have the notion that there's a certain number of casualties. And yet, there's still, you know, people are still entitled to ask, look, is there a point at which you just say this is not worth it? That's a, that's a fair question to ask. I don't think we're anywhere near that because you, you can't think about 1,200 versus whatever the number is, or whatever the number of combatants is, right? There was a, a Times of Israel reporter from an anonymous IDF person, which I you know, can't take terribly seriously about talking about what the proportion of uh, combatants and non-combatants is and the numbers that Hamas are giving. Right? You have to show that it would bother you if it turned out that there was, in fact, indifference. And Dafka, you know, the people who are serious about religion and serious about Yadus and serious about Frumkeit. And to some extent, they have a harder time believing that that concern is, is universal in the Israeli army because unfortunately, the people whom the Dati Lumi community votes for keep saying they don't care, right? Let's, let's, you have to be frank about that. And so you have to keep saying it because Dafka, unfortunately, Rabbonim don't have credibility automatically on these issues because there are from politicians who say things, you know, that seem to suggest that they are utterly indifferent. Uh, one of my Talmudot, um, Rabbi Tal Singer, wrote a beautiful piece last week about the difference between how you can feel empathy and yet be able to make rational decisions. And there, I think that was a very, very, you, know, you can't make decisions out of emotion, but there are certain emotions that you have to be able to feel or you can't make rational decisions either. To have credibility, you have to show that you take, that you really care about what the facts are and that you really have moral moral stands, and you really want to make sure that the facts are uh, commensurate with your moral stand, and that, that involves explaining, you know, that that some that casualty numbers are not compared to the number of casualties that you had in the past because we're not engaged in revenge. There, its question is, what are they preventing in the future? If the answer is that the result of eradicating Hamas is that uh, you know a quarter million people can live can live in right, where they're supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael. And, you know, leaving aside the positive consequences, uh, right, for the population of Gaza, which is currently under, you know, under a cruel dictatorship, then that's one thing. If there were a moment where it just became, well, they killed 
1,200 of us, so let's kill 12,000 of them. I don't think that be. I think that yeah, that all all the voices of terror should be standing up and say this is not something we do. It has no purpose. I don't know. You know, you're right. There are those strident voices that you are hearing. I don't know if it it represents the majority of uh, the the what we call the from or orthodox or a world. I don't think. I don't think that is the case. I think there is a a, a lot of concern and anguish over their deaths. But I think the you know the as Marco Rubio pointed out this week. When he was asked, doesn't he care about the women and children that are that have been killed in the Israeli response? And he says, well, I blame Hamas because they have set up their their militias there. They've set up their their areas of, of fighting there. It's all part of the playbook of what you know Yasser Arafat and others already have drawn up. This is entirely is entirely this- correct that every civilian casualty which is necessary right for the eradication of Hamas. Is Hamas's fault, but that doesn't right. The notion that we have no agency, right? That's absurd. Of course, we have agency as to how right as as to what we do in order to prosecute that war properly. So that and I, I agree with you, Baruch Hashem. I don't think it's the majority of the community. Uh, you know, I hope it's I hope it's a vocal, very very small minority. But I have to acknowledge that politically in Israel, that the party which identifies with religious Zionism. Um, happens to be the voices. Now, as I argued in the tradition, I think this is enormously destructive politically and morally, because, for example, right, we all, those of us who really want to minimize civilian casualties, desperately want um, Palestinian civilians to move when the IDF tells them to. And, right, and the more they disbelieve that the goal of the IDF is actually to, to avoid killing them, right, the more less likely they are to move and the more, and the harder it is for the IDF to conduct its uh, right to you know, to kill as few people as it would like, and um, the more likely it is that international opinion will prevent Israel from fighting the war. And so, all these statements are military and politically destructive, in addition to immoral. So, let me just push back there for a second. You know, you sure. know, again, I condemn them as well, but the mindset of let's say the Palestinian woman or child or teenager about believing that Israel wants to save them and wants them to move to whatever sort of safe zone. It isn't because they heard, uh, you know, Smotrich and others from the settler movements or some of, of the, the, the more aggressive statements. They have been primed from their cradle to, to hate the oppressor. And again, this, is, this has been, you know, pretty much uh, shown by, you know, the, the videos and the, the magazine articles and the school books and you know so many aspects of evidence which indicate that there is a hating mindset that permeates everywhere i just you know stilling those voices isn't going to believe i believe make much of a difference they of course don't trust us and 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 you know they have they have been sort of I think the idea they are innocents in a way, but they are definitely, you know, they are definitely are, aren't. They don't, they don't they don't see the Israelis as anything except the bad guys, the ones that you have to that you have to hate. I mean, I, I think you know, I think there, there are a whole bunch of things to talk about. So, you know, I think that we don't know as much as we think we do, but I don't see any reason for optimism. I would I would frame about the mindset of the Palestinian people. I think that we have to be leery. Yeah, I've written this that there are two fantasies about you know about about totalitarian regimes. One is that all their people are just chafing for freedom, and the other is that all their people believe you know are are, are brainwashed and believe everything that their government says. I mean, you can think about you know what we thought about North Korea 
uh, we thought about the Soviet Union, but we thought about Iran, all these rights, right? They're both these fantasies, and neither of these fantasies are entirely true. My you know, my estimate is that, that that's a fair description of most of the population of Gaza. And yet, let's say there's a famous story that we're all properly proud of, I think, of the Israeli operatives calling the dentists in Gaza City and right and persuading him to you know to evacuate a whole bunch, a whole bunch of buildings and get all the right people there. And right, and they persuaded him to do it. And he saved, you know, probably hundred, maybe even a thousand people uh, in that process. And so the notion that, of course, even if the current Israeli ministers uh, suddenly had a, a massive experience, which which turned them into Shalmach Shavniks, right? <laughs> which, you know, as his own issue is right, that would not by itself change it, but it makes an enormous difference on the margins. And as I said, also, if we just give up and we say. Oh, well, everyone in the world hates us, right? You know, which seems to have more to tell right? Which neither of which are, uh, you know, are pshat and are pshat and chumish. In um, it was a point out where we just, you know, Yishmael and Yishmael and Yitzchok reconcile Esav and Yaakov. That they all they all bury their they both bury their parents together. So I don't think that there's, you know, I pointed out in Jewish link that there the notion that we're bound by biblical precedent to believe in the irrevocability of hatred is is just false. But I think that it certainly makes a difference in, you know, in all in, in all sorts of ways. Let me just push back a little bit on that, because you know, we bandy a lot about about the precedents and and the indicators, the oracle like ways that the Chumash seems to predict or give over. And and again, the Rishonim themselves were already there. The Ramban speaking about Hogar and Sora already saw that somehow Islamic oppression of the Jews was 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 really built into events that had occurred in the time of the Yovis. But I think it's important to, to note that the Palestinians and Hamas is an is only a percentage of Yishmol. If we say that Yishmol, and then again, you know, the Ebenezer, of course, was loath to necessarily relate Yishmol completely to to all Muslims, at the same way he didn't want to relate Esav and Edom to all Christianity, he felt this was a, a, a midrashic leap. You know, he sort of tried to be a voice in the in the wilderness against it. But let's say even if we accept that, that the, the Arabs, the Muslims, these are the B'nai Yishmol, these are our old cousins, the Palestinians represent a, and Hamas especially, and the Palestinians specifically represent a, a small percentage you're right. I have consistently on every one of my platforms talked about the fact that I believe in the rapprochement between Yishmol and, and Yitzchok, uh, the submission in a way of Yishmol to Yitzchok and the recognizing Yitzchok's moral superiority, but working together. But sometimes there are, you know, Kitzim and Akerem. And I just, again, just don't take this the wrong way, Ravari. I'm not saying that full out slaughter, but when you see that there is inability to even think about things when they when the sloganeering is so dominant when and again like this incidental evidence that I was talking about yes there will be a rapprochement yes there will be that burial there will be that Yishmol and Yitzchak together but it doesn't necessarily mean every single person who we would say is mesiachas to Yishmol no and vice versa right as you point right we know we have Baruch Hashem we have you know. We have peace with a whole bunch of genuine Arab nations, and the you know, and the people we say are Omid Alinu Khalotena or Iran, which is not Ishmael at all, right? So I think right. That, right, we have to not think in those categories about this about about the, about this issue. It's not helpful. It's worse if we introduce categories like Amalek or the Shivamim, of course, 
Um, right? These are right, these are these are just not useful descriptions of our current reality. There are lots of things that have happened in terms of human beings. The the Arab armies that all came with genocidal intent in 1967. We have peace with two of those countries. That's right, exactly. Peace, right? And Iran, who was our friend, all of a sudden has become the country which we really are worried is is from Bernard Lewis on, you know, everyone has really uh, indicated that, you know, the, the Palestinian people specifically have been outliers in so many ways to the general Arab countries. They are they have not been welcomed and supported other than, you know, politically and voices about, you know, we can't make peace with Israel unless they solve this problem. But, you know, the. Unlike Jews who were driven out of so many Arab countries and found safe haven and new lives in, in Israel, however terrible from the Arab perspective the Nakba was, the the countries were not opening their doors with open arms. We know what Hamas is. We know Hamas is a is a splinter branch of the of the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, Egypt did not want uh, them to corrupt uh, their populace with. So you know you know I, I think. To zero in specifically on peace with the Palestinians is the challenge that appears in front of us in order for us to somehow experience the pre-Messianic connection between Yishmol and Yitzchak. You know, I think that, you know, you're reaching a little bit too far. I, I, I say again, my goal is, I think those are the wrong, the, the simple application of specific, right, is, is wrong. Our relationship with Yishmael are complicated and with different aspects of Yishmael are different, even assuming that we properly identify Yishmael nowadays and how we, how we would think about that. And that, you know, say, so the contrast between the UAE and which is a, by our usual definition of Yishmael in Iran, which isn't, right? Just brought, you know, brings that home. So I want to, I want to remove those largely from the conversation. And then we can talk about, okay, you know, we have an obligation of self-defense and a balahargahash game lahargo. And we also have an, you know, an aspiration that people should look at us and say, right? All those things you want to be Mikadesh Shem Shemayim. Obviously, we're not succeeding in that. And the question, right? Now, that is a utopian goal at this stage, right? The notion that, you know, there, we love the moments, right? When there are individual Palestinians or Gazans who recognize, recognize, you know, how amazing it is that Israel treats their, right? Treats their children, right? You know, and, and provides hospital care. And yet we also know that, you know, that we haven't done everything as well as we would have liked. I actually want to explore that area with you a little bit because we, you alluded to it in a conversation that we had off pod. Uh, you mentioned to me that you felt that there actually was very strong biblical precedent from actions that Avram Avinu took and didn't take to, to basically give us direction about what we, what the Israeli government uh, owes to the Palestinians that are living within its environs. So that's sort of like the day after. So sketch that out for me a little bit. Sure. Okay. Thank you. So let's, you know, let's, let's start with the biblical precedent. I, I think that the reason that Avramavino, one of the reasons Avramavino fights so hard for the people of Stone is that the, that after the war to rescue Lot, uh, the, the king of Stom says to him, Temdehan Nefesh for a Kachlach. And Avram says, I won't take any, uh, I won't take anything of the Rechush, but he gives, in fact, the Nefesh back to the king of Stom. And Lot ends up there. And, you know, Avram Avino Lechorah could have said, no, give me the Nefesh, and you take the Rechush, 
And then he would have had an opportunity to prevent Stone from becoming the kind of place that God felt uh, compelled to destroy. And I think that his achrayas for that is, you know, both for himself and for what it, you know, for what it does to Lot, is enormous and what and, and part of what generates his protest because he feels responsible. I want to connect this to what I thought was a very uh, interesting word from Rav Tamir Granot, the Rosh Hashiva of Rosh Shaul, who should have a nechama for his son. So he said, in terms of the the hostages, uh, right? So I thought, as we, we discussed this in the past, I thought that you know, from a halachic perspective, Yosher Mifte Shivyam is obvious and very hard you know, to to define you know, why, in pure halachic terms, why prisoner exchanges, why you know, why exchanges of hostages for prisoners would be legitimate. And Rav Grenot said that uh, he thought that the state and the, and the nation, the nationality of Israel, had failed the people staying, staying, you know, living in the south. They had not, you know, had not, the the national community had an achrayas to them, and that meant that we had to take chances to right to get them back that would not ordinarily be taken if we felt that that what happened to them was not our responsibility. Achrayas changes the degree of risk that you have to assume to fix the situation. Okay, so so you know you've you stepped you've stepped into somewhat of a complicated uh, issue, of course, and I just want to you know explicate it a little bit for our listeners. The Mishnah and Gitan talks about the, the takana not to redeem hostages for Yoser Michtei Demeyem, and yeah. the Rishonim disagree as to what that could mean, and especially how that could be applied today. If you take the shitas of some Rishonim that we're talking about, and this seems to be shitas Rashi, and others that we're talking about what they are worth on the market as slaves, and when we live in a world where those numbers are are, are not known, uh, and because of the disappearance of slavery in most places, so how do you even know what this takana means about Yosser Michtei Demehen? Well, what is the value of, of of any human being today if you're they're not if you're not selling them as a working machine? So, yeah. And the the Rambam sheet this seems to be the way it's read by even Rechaim Kanyevsky and others that what hostages are generally ransomed for. In other words, if there's a premium on a certain hostage because of their nationality or because of who they belong to, because they belong to the Jews, and that is Yosher Michtei Demeyan, and that would be usher to do based on this takona. So you're mentioning now, Ravarie, that that might be the situation where you have a community that might be imperiled because they are giving away so much to these bandits and robbers uh, that is going to really incur more more incursions. But here, as you said, there is a responsibility, and this I thought was a very novel idea when we talked about it the other day. The state was poshea in such a large extent to allow that security breach to happen, that the state has the responsibility by all means to retrieve them, even if uh, what they're doing seems to be beyond the call, right? That this is what what, what you're saying. By more means than it would have, right? There would be a cry to uh, otherwise, Rav Grenot talks. Clear, about- clearly, they, the, clearly, the, the means cannot include putting more Jews in danger, which you know you you had with the Gilad Shalit uh, exchange, where you have you know one for thousands or whatever it is, and those thousands are sworn combatants against us. But uh, that would be my that- position for sure. Uh, you know, Ravadia has a somewhat radical position about this. You know, I, I don't really follow Ravadia's position on this. I find it very hard to accept. Rav Bernot says that there's a, a fear of to risk soldiers, but not civilians. Right? Soldiers are the embodiment 
statement to the state in that way. It's inter- it is an interesting claim. Yeah, how you draw, draw that line. I just thought I thought that the I thought that you know, that the chiddush that there are times when you have an achrayus as a political community, and that requires more of you than if you didn't have an achrayus. I thought that was a, a, no, a novel but valid idea. This statement from someone who himself had lost children, uh, as you say, uh, inspired you to think about the picture beyond the hostages in terms of the day after, in terms of what we owed morally to the Palestinians, correct? Yeah, I think that, you know, as I, I talked about Robin Stone machine, which I, I had before Rev Grenot. And I, I want to be clear, like, that, you know, what I try to do is when I'm teaching Torah, I try to create a moral framework. And then I might have positions about how that applies. But people have their own. I think there is there are many valid positions about the extent to which the Israel, the Jewish state, whatever it may be, is responsible for the political dysfunction of the internal governments of the Palestinian areas. And all I'm, you know, and without taking a position about that, you know, what could have been done better, couldn't have been done better. I say is that I think that the more you feel that there are things that we could have done better because. Because you know, we were in the position, to some extent, of Avram having conquered stone. Right now, right, we you know that they're they're in they're in our hands in large measure. Now, resisting, and I don't know what you know, I don't know what would have happened to Avram if the you know, maybe the people of stone would have risen up as one against him if he had tried to you know to make any kind of cultural changes. That's what eventually happens to Lot. So there's you know, it's not there's no guarantee. Just as you know, the U.S. failed so signally in Iraq to try and impose its own its, its own its own moral framework. Um, and so a plausible claim can be there was nothing Israel could have done. But if you don't take that position, you take the position that, yeah, you know what, there are things we could have done better. Uh, there are things perhaps we gave up on. There are things perhaps we, where we acted out of self-interest. And the result is a completely broken political culture, you know, and at the very least, deep depths of moral depravity, uh, which, you know, which were evidenced by what Hamas did, and by the failure to rise up as one and condemn Hamas, and by contrast, we should recognize what seems to be the very strong disapproval of Hamas's actions in Arab-Israeli society, which is a right, which is a very positive. One goal. second, you you've heard statements from the Israeli Arabs condemning October seventh. Absolutely, I have not been aware of that. I have not heard those statements. Okay, least, you should look uh, at it. There are polls. Yeah, there's Mansour Abbas's statement. It's exactly right. There, there are joint. There is a lot. You know, it started started with you know with Nas Daily, which is a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, influencer channel. But Mansur um, Abbas has said things. Whether he said everything I wanted to say, no, but he was very explicit about that. And there are other, uh, other, other communities that have uh, that have done other other leaders in the Arab community, and there are polls. Um, and I think it's very important to recognize they're the same people, right? Human beings. Right? But of course, you you under, you understand that there was a move in the seventies. I think even the Al Shifa. Hospital was actually built with plans that were drawn up sure. by Israeli architects. And that's why I'm being very like you know, I think that there is room for reasonable dispute among reasonable people who should all be honest with themselves about all these and do all the investigation they can about the extent to which there is responsibility. If there is responsibility, right? If you take that position, and I validate the people who take that position without necessarily agreeing with them. You know, you ask me my own political position. I give you. Know, I tend to be, I think, very conservative tactically and liberal, liberal strategically, probably, if I had to guess. But I think that I'm trying to give a religious framework for the people who feel that way. And if you right, and if you feel that way, and you know, my opposition is immaterial to this, 
then I think you can say, oh, we know what, that we have an achrayas. I think you're going to have a hard time justifying you know, the argument about how much achrayas Israel has, especially since there was a rejection, the, the, the option of Gaza being part of greater Israel and allowing its citizens the benefits of being citizens of greater Israel, that was what basically was the status quo for a while. And this is what was violently rejected because, you know, they did not want to live under what they felt was the occupation. However, even your parallel to Avram and Stone, you know, it, it's it's hard to know, you know, what the Nasi Elohim Avram would have been to Stone. Notions of nationalism and government during biblical times were obviously a lot more fluid than we understand them today, post the 1848 and stuff. So it's hard to to draw the line, I think, connecting, you know, Avram's guilt or responsibility to what Eretz Yisrael would want. He, what they wanted, what they demanded, what they, what they blew people up for was the fact that they wanted the eradication of the Zionist presence. So it's it's hard, I think, you can validate it as much as you want. I, I think the better argument, I would say, and again, I'm not trying to engage in a debate with you, is that if Israel does not take uh, its shoulder towards creating a better life for the Palestinians, there's going to be other attacks. We're not going to see a resolution. So I think you, know, you want to make a pragmatic argument, and that itself assumes that there are things you can do that will right, that will prevent attacks. Right? You know, the kindness will be reciprocated with and I'm not sure that's true either. I'm not drawing a straight line, right? What I'm saying is I think that I can find a, a basis in the Masoret for the notion of feeling achrayas for the moral and political development of, of a culture that you have power over. And there's no question that we have power over this culture. Now, how much power we have, what effectiveness we could have, what would work, um, you know, that's a whole separate issue. And, the, you know, brings up, you know, there are analogies you can bring up for good or for ill, you know, but, you know, the United States and in Western Europe and in Japan are obviously, you know, people's dream models. We have a, a war that, uh, you know, that... Right, is, but a total defanging of that population. The Germans weren't even able to import toys that were in the shape of little machine guns and BB guns. And if that could be done in Aza, I would have no objection at all. I think that's, you know, a big part. <laughs> okay. of, a big part of... You're definitely dreaming at this point. That is something. We're hoping that we eradicate Hamas and that creates a cultural openness, which has not been there previously. That has to be part of the goal. Again, my, you know, my personal political position is you have to think in 30 to 50 year terms. There's a plus and a minus to a culture which is 50% of its population under 18. It replaces itself very rapidly. Uh, obviously, you know, as part of this, you'd have to talk about how, my perspective, right? You'd have to hope that the U.S. supports the complete replacement of every single staff person in the UNRWA. Every single staff person should be fired immediately and replaced by somebody with no prior history in the area. That would be my personal position. And without that, I have very little hope because the educational system is central. But that's me. You know, like I, I don't want to impose my... that I have a particular political position is not my job as a, you know, as somebody who teaches Torah. I mentioned to you that every student, as much as you would want them to believe that they come into a, a sort of sanctified space where it's only the ideas and most of them come in with feelings with what they're hearing, as I said before. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you specifically, since you did visit the colleges, did you feel from any of the places that you went that 
the Jewish students felt unsafe? Did they feel that they were being harassed? Did they feel that they that they were scared? Did you did you get a sense that uh, you know you went to Princeton, you went places? I don't know if the, you're right; they aren't super political places like you might have in Cornell. But did you did you sense as a teacher that there was a fear? among the student body that you were speaking to the places i went generally not that was not a fear was not fear was not a major a major consideration yeah i think there are people who feel that way and there are people who feel very strongly not that way uh as you know there are people you know people feel that way you know on the streets of new york or europe and people evaluate risks differently you know, I think that there are places, you know, where more, you know, more direct action was taken specifically against Jewish institutions on campus. Those places, those places probably feel more fear. There are places where the administration is vacillating in response, probably feel more fear than places where the administration is immediately supportive. When I was in, um, when I was in Israel for the first Gulf War, so there was all the question whether the American students should come home. And the response that the yeshiva came up with, I thought, when I was in, I was in Chris, uh, which was BMT, right? St. Billy BMT at the time was to leave the metro section of the New York Times next to the phone. And whenever student parents, you know, called the students and said, you have to come home. It's dangerous there. The students would just read the metro section of the New York Times and say, come home to that. <laughs> now, I would say that nothing on an American college campus has yet approached New York City in the 19, right, in the 1980s. Yeah, right. In right. Terms of, news, the news stories are meant to shock us, to scare us, to rattle us. But since this is a program, you know, this conversation is about your efficacy and what your experiences were in teaching. I just wondered if any of that intensity, that worry showed itself in terms of the way you were questioned in terms of the vibe and the audience. As you and I both know, the concentration level and attention span of the student today is, is far different than the students that we grew up with. And I know that you are always able to make things precise and interesting and clear eye, but a lot of times what students are interested in is, is the brass tacks, especially when they are hearing the type of complaints about how uh, how terrible things are. Uh, that was really one of the reasons why I wanted to, 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 to speak with you. We have a, a major cultural issue which is not so much about fear i think that's exaggerated but that i think that one of the things this has shown us is that political efficacy of the american pro-israel community is extremely important to the right to the flourishing of the state of israel and to the extent that intellectually we are not making a case that is persuasive to many students on college campuses including the jewish students about the fundamental rightness of the zionist project that's a real danger, not so much to us in America as to as to the state of Israel, and, and that is you know, very worrisome to students. That and you know it should be worrisome to all of us. Let us hope that again that you and others will be taking these messages and being able to disseminate them in a way that allows people to grow, mature, as you say, add to the minds and hearts that the state of Israel so desperately needs. So thank you for giving us so much time here, uh, Ravaye. I hope we'll catch you Thank again you soon. All right. Take care. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.